0: Hello everyone, and welcome to our Employment Law Year-in Review Regional Roundtable Series brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the largest network of labour employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Sopon Bhattunrat Borgun, Senior Associate at Pride Center in Thailand. Each year, we kick off our programme with a special series of Year-in Review programmes Broken down by regions and focusing on the most impactful regulation of the past year, as well as forecasting on important topics that will impact employers in the coming year. Today, we are connecting our member firm from Australia. Joining us on the program are Michael, Nicolazzo and Marie Skinner, partners at Maddox. Welcome, Michael, Marie. It's a pleasure having both of you on our program. How are you today?
1: I'm well, thanks Safon. Nice to be here.
0: Hi Savon. it's good to be with you today. Michael, I understand there have been a lot of changes in 2023 in Australia. What can you tell us about those changes?
1: Well, Sofon, it definitely has been a big year in employment law and industrial relations here in Australia. Just over a year ago, The Secure Jobs Better Pay Bill was finally passed after a whirlwind of back and forth negotiations between the government and the crossbenchers in the Senate. At the time that those changes were introduced, they were the most significant changes to the employment law landscape since the introduction of the Fair Work Act, which is Australia's underpinning piece of legislation. But the recent changes proposed in the closing loopholes bill are probably just as expansive and I'll speak about them today as well. What we saw during the year were a number of changes introduced regarding pay secrecy, enterprise agreement making, bargaining, flexible work and fixed term contracts, all with a view to drive wages growth and enhance job security. And those changes were introduced through the Secure Jobs and Better Pay Act. And then we also saw what has been known as the Closing Loopholes Bill and That was, like I said, just as expansive as the Secure Jobs Better Pay Act, and like the name suggests, the government introduced that bill to close a range of loopholes it perceived as being exploited by employers. That was focused on matters such as labour hire arrangements, casual employment, the perennial question of an employee or independent contractor characterisation, and the gig economy. And so we'll see those changes play out in 2024.
0: Well, Marie, Michael mentions trade secrecy as one of the changes that have been introduced. What can you tell us about those changes? The changes
2: commenced back in December 2022, so we're just over a year on from those changes, which made it unlawful to include pay secrecy terms in new employment contracts entered after that time or to otherwise require employees to keep the details of their remuneration confidential. And by details of remuneration, it's not just a salary, but also other terms that are reasonably necessary to calculate remuneration. So, things like incentive formulas and hours of work, perhaps even. So, in December last year, it became unlawful to have these types of clauses or requirements, but the way in which the legislation has been introduced is that employers were given a a grace period, if you like, before they were subject to penalties for including such clauses. So, initially, those clauses were just unenforceable, but from the 7th of June 2023, it's become possible for employers to be prosecuted and have penalties imposed on them if they include those types of clauses in employment agreements or otherwise require employees to keep their pay details secret. So that, in a nutshell, means that employees really can now choose if they wish to disclose details of their remuneration to others. And this is all designed to try and improve the gender pay gap and guard against discrimination. That's the policy
0: reason behind it. Wow okay Michael, what can you tell the listeners about the changes to fixed term contracts?
1: Yeah so there have been quite significant changes in relation to fixed term contracts and they just started to commence in early December uh, of 2023 and the I guess the policy rationale behind these changes was that the ALP government saw fixed term contracts as another form of insecure work so just like casual engagements, rolling fixed-term contracts gave employees no certainty. And so from the 6th of December, 2023, some fixed-term contracts are now prohibited. And there's probably three broad types of prohibitions. So fixed-term contracts where the engagement is for more than two years are prohibited. Contracts that can be renewed or extended more than once, even if it's for less than two years, are also prohibited. And consecutive fixed-term contracts for the same or substantially similar work that extend for more than two years are also prohibited. So there's a bit in there, so I might unpack those because a couple of things do jump out. I guess probably the more simplest prohibition, if there's a fixed-term contract that runs for, for more than two years, the employee at that point in time will become a permanent contract unless there's an exception, and I'll come to that in a moment. In relation to the prohibition on renewing contracts... Say you've got a fixed-term contract that runs from 31st of January 2024 until the 31st of March 2024, and it's renewed once until the 30th of June 2024. Any attempt to renew beyond that date is no longer permissible, and it will become a permanent appointment from that date onwards. And then also, while the changes came into effect from the 6th of December 2023, if there's a consecutive or or rolling fixed-term contract being renewed, then the time that existed on that pre-6th of December contract will count towards any renewal. And so the total period of time for a consecutive contract can still be no longer than two years. Otherwise, they will also be falling foul of these prohibitions. Now, I did mention that there were some exceptions to these rules, and that is quite helpful for employers. One of the most obvious and the easiest exception that applies is if an employee earns more than the high income threshold. They're not covered by these prohibitions. And what that means is that here in Australia, if someone earns more than $167,500 in this current financial year, then they can be engaged on a fixed-term contract that extends for more than two years or is renewed more than once. Likewise, if an employee is engaged to perform, and this is what the legislation says, only a distinct and identifiable task involving specialised skills, they'll also be exempt. Now, it's not entirely clear, I would say, um, how broad that exception will be interpreted. The language is instructive. In my view, I think it's quite narrow because it does say only a distinct and identifiable task involving specialised skills. And so that is slightly different to the language that's used in relation to the unfair dismissal jurisdiction. There are other exceptions, and that is uh, for people engaged to perform essential work during a peak demand period. They can be engaged on these sorts of fixed-term contracts If they're replacing a temporary absence, someone's on parental leave, for example, can also be engaged on fixed-term contracts and are covered by these prohibitions. Or if the role is wholly or partly government-funded for more than two years and there is no reasonable prospect that the funding will be renewed at the end of that period, that's also an exception that applies. Some regulations were recently made as well in early December which means that some industries have some extra time before these prohibitions kick in, the most notable being in the higher education space. So employers in Australia covered by the higher education industry modern awards won't be subject to these prohibitions until 1 July next year. And likewise, employers in the sporting bodies, coaches, life performance industry and employees funded by charities as well. Just two final things I want to touch on, Sofon. There are anti-avoidance provisions, which mean that employers can't deliberately terminate an employee's employment or delay re-engaging someone to avoid these provisions. And from the 6th of December 2023, there's also an obligation to provide employees with what's called a fixed-term contract information statement. And that statement is available on the Fair Work Ombudsman website. And so it's really important for employers to be across those obligations in respect of fixed-term contracts.
0: Marie, I understand there has been a focus for some time in Australia on sexual harassment and workplace cultures. What changes have taken place in 2023 about those matters?
2: In addition to the changes the secure jobs legislation that michael has referred to this suite of changes has also introduced changes to discrimination legislation in australia through an amendment to the sex discrimination act and from 12 december this year so the legislation was passed in december last year along with the secure jobs legislation but it wasn't enforceable until the 12th of december this year so again employees have been given a bit of a grace period to get on top of these changes. And the main one I wanted to mention was the new obligation or positive duty, as we're calling it, on employers to take steps which everything reasonably practicable to prevent workplace sexual harassment and sex discrimination. So in the past, employers could be subject to claims under discrimination legislation if someone was subject to sexual harassment or to discrimination on the basis of their sex. But now employers have a positive duty to actually take steps which are reasonable and proportionate measures to seek to prevent those things occurring. So, in addition to an employee making a claim, it's now possible for the Australian Human Rights Commission to actually conduct an investigation if they reasonably believe an employer is not complying with this duty and issue a compliance notice requiring compliance. They can apply to the federal court for orders to direct an employer to comply or agree enforceable undertakings with an employer to take steps which are reasonable and proportionate to prevent sexual harassment and sex discrimination from occurring. So that's, I guess, in a nutshell, the regime that's been put in place. I guess the question for lots of employers and and the one that is top of mind at the moment with these obligations now in force is what does that actually mean in practice and how do I actually comply with this positive duty? What does that require of me? And the Australian Human Rights Commission has issued a lot of guidance and employers should go to their website. There's a Respect at Work site that they can go to. And there's a quite a lot of guidance material there, which is incredibly helpful, which sets out guiding principles and standards for them to think about in, in taking steps, which might be helpful. But In essence, what is required is to take more like the approach we take in or traditionally take in the work health and safety space to identifying risks assessing the level of those risks and then taking steps to control or minimize those risks so that that risk management approach that we're familiar with in Australia in managing our work health and safety risks we also need to now bring that lens to the sexual harassment and sex discrimination space and through a process involving the leadership team who really need to be on board and consultation with employees in the organization really need to assess where the risks of this type of behaviour are coming from and what steps can be taken by the organisation to try and prevent these types of behaviours, these inappropriate conducts occurring. And I think it's pretty clear from the guidance material that the steps that we've traditionally taken in this space to try and mitigate The likelihood of claims arising, which has been to have a policy which sets out what is considered inappropriate conduct and the company's stance that that is unacceptable and employees must not engage in that conduct. That type of policy, we've trained employees in relation to those policies and we've had complaint mechanisms in place. All of that is still necessary and part of what we need to do going forward But I think what employers need to understand is that's not going to be enough any longer, certainly not for larger organisations and because the Commission will take account of the size of the organisation and their level of resources in determining what is reasonable and proportionate for a particular employer to do to seek to prevent this type of conduct. But I think it's certainly the case that larger organisations are going to have to do more than have a policy, conduct some training and have a complaint mechanism in place. They're really going to need to look at their culture, their gender equality, their risk profile, so where are the claims coming from, their complaint handling processes, the support they provide for employees and whether or not they're dealing with complaints in a way which is supportive of of the victims involved, the individuals involved, and is trauma-informed, because that's going to be an important part of people coming forward, the issues being dealt with, and further issues being prevented. So that's, in essence, the types of things employers are going to have to think about going forward to try and ensure that they comply with this positive duty.
0: Flexible and hybrid work is one topic that has been of interest across many jurisdictions. A question for you, Marie. Does the secure jobs better paid ad changes we have been speaking about deal with this issue?
2: Yes, yeah, so far, it does. So, we've had some provisions in the Fair Work Act for a long time now providing certain categories of employees with a right to request a flexible work arrangement. But in the past, that right didn't have a lot of teeth to it, if you like, in the sense that employees could request, but if the employer refused, there wasn't really anything the employee could do about that. And so, it it didn't really have enormous impact in terms of providing employees with rights with respect to flexible work. What the changes in the Secure Jobs Better Pay Act have done is uh, they've slightly expanded the categories of employees who have access to this right to request a flexible work arrangement. So, it now includes also employees who are experiencing family and domestic violence and those who are caring for them. But the main change really is in the way in which employers are required to deal with these requests in circumstances where they're not minded to agree to them. So, Before refusing a request, there is now an obligation on an employer to consult and discuss the request with the employee. And they have an obligation to genuinely try to reach agreement with the employee about the request. And in doing that, consider the impact of refusing the request on the employee. So there's going to need to be a consultation process. And if having genuinely tried to reach agreement, The employer and the employee are not able to reach an agreement on a flexible work arrangement. The employer, as was the case previously, is required to explain in writing the reasons for the refusal and can only refuse on reasonable business grounds. Then the other big change, in addition to the obligation to consult and genuinely try to reach agreement, is that where there is a refusal, an employee now has the right to make an application to the Fair Work Commission and to dispute that finding. Previously, there was no mechanism for an employee to challenge an employer's refusal, but now they have a route to the Fair Work Commission and the Fair Work Commission can make binding orders and impose penalties on employers who don't comply with their obligations. So it is possible the Fair Work Commission in dealing with a dispute about a flexible work arrangement can make orders to impose a particular arrangement. So it is quite important that employers really consider their obligations, really consider whether a flexible work arrangement is possible because now the fact that they're exposed to potentially having orders made which require them to implement certain flexible work measures which may or may not be manageable in the context of their business. So it really is imperative to try and reach agreements on these things where possible.
0: Well, Michael, you mentioned there was another piece of legislation that brought in some changes the Closing Loopholes Bill. Can you tell our listeners about that bill?
1: That's right, So, finally, the, the Closing Loopholes Bill was introduced to Parliament in September 2023. And what was interesting was that at the time, the Senate crossbenchers were much more cautious about the extent of the changes that were proposed and wanted uh, more time to properly consider the raft of amendments. And that meant that a number of Senate committees were arranged and initially The bill was to be brought back before the parliament in February 2024. Interestingly, in early December 2023, the government did a deal with the crossbench senators to in effect split the bill. That was a development that really caught a lot of people off guard, including us employment lawyers. And so some of the changes of the bill were introduced in early December and have now come into operation.
0: So what provisions have already started and what does that mean for employers?
1: Yeah, a handful of changes have been introduced and commenced. There's probably two that really jump out as having the biggest impact for employers. And one of the most contentious areas of the changes was the same job, same pay premise, dealing with labour hire workers. In summary, the proposition is this. Labour hire workers supplied to an organisation and working alongside direct employees should receive the same rate of pay as those direct employees. That's been the premise of the government's changes. The ALP government was concerned that too many employers whose employees were covered by an enterprise agreement were trying to circumvent or create a loophole around those enterprise agreement terms by engaging labour hire providers to supply labour. And those employees, the the labour hire employees, were being paid a lower amount. So, if employers do utilise labour hire providers and engage labour hire personnel from the 15th of December 2023, they could be subject to an order issued by the Fair Work Commission. A labour hire worker, a labour hire provider or a union can go off to the Fair Work Commission and apply for what's called a regulated labour hire arrangement order, so a bit of a mouthful, But what that order would do is require an employer to pay a labour hire worker what's called the protected rate of pay. So, in a sense, the same amount as direct employees. So, while orders can be made from the 15th of December 2023, or at least applications can be made, any order that is made won't commence operation until November 2024. So, still some time before that will kick in. The other big change that has been introduced in this first half or this first realm of the loopholes changes is a federal wage theft provisions. So, it means that employers can now be criminally responsible for deliberate underpayments made to employees And what we saw as an immediate result of that was the legislation in Victoria, which has had its own wage theft legislation for a few years, an announcement that that will no longer be in operation, given that there will be a federal wage theft scheme or or jurisdiction, which will apply to all employers in Australia. And we've seen that really be a focus for quite some time in terms of deliberate underpayments and prosecutions from the Fair Work Ombudsman and so, from early twenty twenty five, when these provisions kick in, there is now another regime which could lead to criminal sanctions if employers deliberately underpay employees.
0: And what is likely to happen in two thousand twenty four for the remainder of the closing loopholes bill?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, Sophon. So we are anticipating further debate in relation to the remaining provisions. And those remain provisions do have the potential to really alter the landscape in 2024. And they'll deal with how we define casual employees here in Australia. So there were some changes introduced in early 2021. And what the second component of the Closing Loopholes Bill is looking to do is to return the assessment of what is a casual employee to, uh, one, the loading, the terms of the engagement, but really the the conduct and the relationship between the parties as well. Likewise, for the issue about whether someone is an employee or a contractor, Closing Loopholes Bill is proposing to address two high court decisions which turn the focus away from the true nature of the relationship and rather looked at the terms of the written contract. But what will happen should those changes be passed? is that there will be a focus on a range of indicia to determine whether someone's an employee or a contractor. So, so in that regard, it's sort of back to the future uh, in, in that aspect. And there's also likely to be changes introduced if they uh, uh, remain as they are proposed that governs the engagement of gig economy workers. And there will be introduction of minimum terms and conditions for those sorts of workers. So it will definitely be a big 2024 in the employment landscape here in Australia.
0: That certainly sounds like a lot of activity for 2024. Marie, do you have any predictions for 2024 and what employers should be aware of?
2: 2024 is obviously going to be a year of further changes, as Michael's just outlined. I think it's going to be a year of employers really trying to get on top of all of the changes. Many employers are still in the process of trying to put new procedures and processes in place to deal with what's occurred in 2023. So, it's going to be a year of catching up, of change, of implementing and ensuring compliance across a whole range of areas, some quite substantial in terms of people's Approach to the use of for labour hire, for example, casual employees. So, really, bigger questions around the structure of their workforces are going to need to be asked. So, there's a lot of work to do, I think, for employers in 2024 as they really start to think through all of these changes and how they might need to shape their workforces accordingly.
0: I think this is very informative and all clear. Michael Marie, this has been a very interesting discussion and especially helpful for employers in Australia. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Siphon. Thank you. If you would like to connect with Michael or Marie, please click on their bios in the descriptions of this podcast. We also encourage you to reach out to any of our lawyers around the world by selecting Find a Lawyer on the EOA website at EOA.law or download our app by searching Employment Law Alliance in the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Additionally, check out training.ela.law to access our training portal featuring online harassment prevention programs and much more. Information about all the programs available in the year in review series and other resources are available on the event landing page at ela.law. You have been listening to the Employment Law Year in Review Regional Roundtable, a series, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labour employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Sopon Batumrat Burgun.
1: thanks for listening.